Well, while children are leaving, you can turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. If you don't have a physical copy of the Bible with you, uh, you can use your phone, something like that. But I highly encourage you to, to bring your Bibles with you as we explore these things together. As long as we have children's ministry, we know this is still a relevant topic, right, of sexuality. We know this is still... See, this is a little humor to kind of lighten the, lighten the mood before we dive in here. Um, and again, before we get into the text, quick show of hands. How many of you, like over the last week, cold weather, little snow, are just living your best life? You just you love, your inner child comes out, you're out making snow angels, playing in the snow, sledding. Like how many of you, like that's you, and how many of you are like questioning your decision of living in northeastern Ohio and are just like, really? Like, how, all right. So more, more of you in that camp. So I, I love the snow. I love it so much. I wish we had, I wish this was like four months of the year. My least favorite weather is like 40 degrees and rainy, which is often what we have. And so this feels like, ah, uh, feels like a gift to me. So sorry, sorry for those of you who don't, don't like it as much. So we are in this, this beautiful scripture and we've just been gathering around the book of Ephesians now for a number of months. We, we took a little break over Advent as we kind of celebrated Christmas. And then after the first of the year, we, we came back to the second half of the book of Ephesians in this series called All Things New. And part of the new year is uh, asking questions about who we're becoming and how we partner with God to become the kinds of people that he wants us to be, that he created us to be, intends us to be. And we're doing this um, called All Things New. All Things New, uh, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. And I want to remind us of something we, we covered a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians 2, verse 15. And, and the Apostle Paul, as he writes this, he says, this was the purpose of Jesus. And God, through Jesus, says this, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. So as Reuben had us look around the room earlier, and we're looking at this one new humanity created in Jesus. Like this is part of his vision. And if we could look around the world, right, and we could see these other groups of, of people, different denominations, speaking different languages, uh, gathered all around the world, people gathered in Jesus, being formed into this new humanity, where Jesus is teaching us a new way to live, a new way to be human, a new way to live out our identity in Christ. And so that's what we do when we gather here on a Sunday morning. Um, we're being discipled in the way of Jesus, learning how to live out of our identity of what he has called us to be in this new humanity. And so um, part of the hope and the vision for church, like part of like, I think we, we had a, a wonderful elders retreat last weekend. Uh, you, you just have an amazing group of elders. Do you know this? Like so, so great that God has called people up for this season in these moments to to lead um, in the church and to lead with just, just this kind of heart of love and with a vision and a desire to be faithful to Jesus. And so I just, I am so grateful to serve alongside of, of all of you, but, but I get to serve alongside of the elders in a really significant way. So just want to honor them. Um, and so as we spend time praying together and just dreaming about like, okay, what might God want life bridge to look like? And, and what is God doing? And where's the wind of the Spirit blowing? Like one of the, the things that we, we feel real deeply is that like life bridge 
is like this place of refuge. It's like when you come in from, from the harsh conditions of the world and you step into this place with Jesus' people, that it should be a relief. You should be able to sigh. You should be able to kind of like let your guard down. It should be a safe space where we can show up in our full selves, bring our whole heart into worship and encounter the love and the healing presence of Jesus. This is what the new humanity looks like. This is what Jesus wants for us. And I hope you feel that this morning, that there is, even though we talk about hard things, we speak the truth in love and as best we can, the church is called to be this, this countercultural, a different kind of culture. And you can feel it because it's palpably Christian, because Jesus is Lord. And I hope that's what we want. So um, let's read, let's read this text, Ephesians 5, and we're going to look at verses 1 uh, to 14. It says this, so follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, but among you, there must not even, excuse me, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That's why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Lord, we ask that your word would, would just have full access to our hearts. That you would... That you would be Lord in this place and in our lives, that we would um, just feel like your loving invitation to, to step into your light, to be healed of whatever darkness might be inside of us. God, I pray that you would break down any barriers, any resistance, any, um, anything that would come against, just the, the healing that you want to do in us and through us today. We give our whole selves to you, your Lord, and we... Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Bible, the Bible's pretty awesome, isn't it? I mean, just like, this is like hashtag real talk right here. And, and the Bible just goes there. Are people still doing that? Is that like, was that like five years ago? No, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm not very, very with it culturally. Um, but this is just, the, the Bible examines just every part of our life in the light of Jesus, that there, there's nothing that's kind of off limits from him. And, and so um, 
sexuality is a, is a very important, it's not the central part of our identity, um, no matter like what culture would say, culture would often say like, no, like your sexual identity, it is your identity. That's not true. It's not the way the Bible talks about it, but it is an important part of our life. And it's an important part of God's design for our life. Uh, and so this is, um, there's a lot in this text, right? There's, there's, poof, there's, a, there's a lot. Uh, so I can promise you, it's going to be a long sermon. Um, like buckle up, right? It's, there's just, you can't say this without saying that. And so I preach long most of the time, but this is going to be like, it's going to be like biblically long, like whew, don't sit in the windowsill long. Um, um, but it won't be boring. I promise you that. It won't be boring. At least I hope not. Um, but I, I, I realize, like, I have just felt this gravity of this text for a couple of weeks. As I know this is coming up, I've been praying and inviting other people, inviting the elders to pray and intercede because I think the Lord wants to, like, I think he wants to do something powerful and special in us as we, as we let his word speak to us. But I realize there's, a, there's a, like, a tenderness and a gentleness to this. And so I, I just, I realize that as we gather in a group like this, I don't know how many of us are in this room, we all, have, we all have a story, as Ruben said, and we all have pain related to, like, sexuality in one way or another. So I just want to acknowledge that. Like, some of us, like, we might be in this, in this space this morning, and we're single. A big part of our church is single, like, living out faithfulness to Jesus in our singleness. And, and we show up and we hear a, a teaching like this, and, and, and maybe we're struggling to figure out, like, how do I surrender, like, sexual desire in, like, in my singleness? And how do I stay faithful to Jesus in this? And maybe this is, like, the big struggle of your life. And, and oftentimes the church just, um, like, you know, we, we talk about, like, marriage as if it's, like, a foregone conclusion. We tell children, like, when you get married, we just assume that's going to happen. And that's not true. Like, the Bible, the Bible elevates singleness, as a, as a high calling. And, and so maybe, um, maybe you have felt like just kind of pushed aside like this. And I just want to like, I just want to draw you in to say, Jesus, he sees you, he loves you, and he cares for you in this message. It, I hope it resonates with you. Maybe, maybe you have a past. And we all do. But, but you like, you feel the shame of decisions that you've made or, or things that have, have happened to you. And the question you show up with as, as it relates to like sex and sexuality is like, will, will I ever get over this? And maybe you just like feel heaviness and shame even, even talking about this in this setting. Maybe there's pain in your life because you have suffered trauma. Like that there has been, I don't know that there's any pain that we can experience in life that is as painful as, as trauma um, sexual trauma. And so maybe your question is like, will I heal? Like, is it possible for me to heal? Will this pain ever go away? And so whatever your story, I want you to, like, I want you to know that God sees you and he loves you and he's for you and he wants the very, very best for you. Do you believe that? God looks like Jesus and Jesus was always like, he just knew what people needed, and he was always gentle, but he was always honest, and he was always true, and I'm going to do my best to, to be the same. Like, sometimes when we talk about sexuality in the church, we have one of two reactions. It's like, oh, great. We read a text like this, and it's like, great. Here's the church being the morality police again. 
That's right. That's why pastors exist, to just like go around and keep everybody from having a good time. And, you know, it's just like these religious do's and don'ts. And so, like, you feel like, all right, this is, uh, Eric's going to, you know, put on his, like, morality police hat. I don't have one of those. But, and, and we feel like, okay, like every teaching I've ever had about sexuality, it's harsh and it's shame-based, makes me feel less than. And it doesn't actually produce change. It's just kind of this shallow change. It just tries to change our behaviors. And let's be honest, the church doesn't really have a leg to stand on when it comes to morality, right? There's, there's so much hypocrisy in the church, and we've all seen the sexual scandals and the, you know, the, the leaders who say one thing and then do another. And so, like, maybe you feel that. It's just like, ah, oh, come on. But on the other hand, like, we, we can feel like, what, what are we even doing talking about this? Because, like, I mean, the church exists to just affirm people, doesn't it? I mean, that's what, like, God is kind of this, like, grandfather in the sky who just, like, hey, you do you. I'm going to cheer you on, right? And you just, like, the aff- church should be, like, this affirmation society. Maybe that's what you feel. And, and the problem with that is, like, this, if the church just exists to say, like, let's just feel good about ourselves, well, then there's, like, it's kind of weak sauce, Right? It's, do people still say weak sauce? Like, hashtag weak sauce? Um, see, we'll try to mix a little humor in here. You've got to keep the room laughing a little bit. If, if that's it, if the church just exists to affirm each other, it's shallow. And there's no transformation in that. And that's not what we want. That's not why we're showing up. Are you with me? So be, both of these are, are, are just like, they're failures. The church is morality police, like religious standards, or the church is just kind of this affirmation society. Both of them miss the mark. But what we are called to do and what leads us to maturity is when we speak the truth in love. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. It's like the, the truth of Jesus and who we are created to be and who he designed us to be and the truth of, of what will really bring us flourishing. And we speak that truth, not in harshness and condemnation, but in love. That's how we grow. So with all that, how are we doing? Let's dive in. Let's look, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Okay, so follow God's example, therefore. And that's a, that's a really cool thing for Paul to say. Follow God's example. It's actually like the word, some, some translations say imitate God, be imitators of God. The word is really where we get the word mimic. Mimic God. So you like look at what Jesus was like and you mimic him. You follow his example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and how do we do that? Well, we walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is a, like these two verses, it's, it would be a really amazing thing to memorize these. Like these have been verses that kind of live in my head and kind of live in my heart and keep coming back to me. Like, all right, this is, this is like one of those like really powerful transformative transformative passages in the Bible. Be imitators of God. Mimic God. Look at the example of Jesus and just like walk in his way. It's like when you, um, you, you go out and play in the snow with your kids or with like, you know, somebody who's, who's smaller and you're walking through deep snow. I remember like one time in Kansas, we got like this, you know, 12, 15 inch snow. I love it, right? Having a great time. And I think it was Brenna was out there with me and she's just like, you know, a little tight. And so the snow is like, you know, up to her upper thigh. And so the only way she can walk through the snow is if I go in front of her and I make like a path and then she can, I'm, I'm stepping, you know, really small and then she can step in my footprints. She's like mimicking 
my footprints. And this is the image here. It's like Jesus created this path. He, he walked in this way. And now we're just like, okay, Jesus, like this is the way that you walk. Walk in the way of love. Be imitators of God. And the image is like you and I are dearly loved children of God. Like you are, and the word dearly loved is the word beloved. It's like you are agape. You are loved in a way that you could not be more loved. You are today Right now, a dearly loved child of God. Notice what the text does not say. It doesn't say, if you imitate God, then you will be a dearly loved child. Do you hear that? It doesn't say. It's not an if-then. It is you already are a dearly loved child. Now, because you're a dearly loved child of God, walk in the way of love. This is something you already are. So you just get to, to live out of that. Children, children grow we have these, this part of our brain, and again, I'm not, I'm not like all into brain science, but you have these mirror neurons in your brain, and um, it's part of the way God wired us that we're meant to mimic other people. Do you ever like do that thing where like somebody yawns in the room and then, oh, everybody yawns? Any yawners in the room? No? So we have these mirror neurons that, like, when we see somebody else doing something, it, like, triggers something in our brain to say, like, oh, like, yeah, I, I, I empathize with you. My daughter just yawned. That's great. I see you, sweetie. Or, like, kids, right? You know, you have, you have a child, and, and the way that they learn to show expression is by their parent, like, looking at him in the, in the face, and we exaggerate our expressions. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. I'll do that to you. Yes, you are. Right? Why do we do that? It's because kids, like, they learn, they mimic us, and then they smile. They open up, right? So you are made to mimic somebody. You only learn how to be human by watching other people be human. So the invitation of this text is if you're going to learn how to live in the new humanity, who's the one we imitate? God. Jesus. We look at his example. So follow his example as dearly loved children. And how do we do that? We walk in the way of love. We walk in the way of agape. Everybody say agape. There are, there are different kinds of love. Um, but agape is a very specific kind of love. Agape is the love Jesus showed us. It is, agape is not a feeling. Agape is, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, it is a commitment to seek the good of the other for the sake of the other. That's what love is. It's self-emptying, self-giving love. It's not asking, how much can I get from this person? What am I getting out of this relationship? Agape love is other-centered, and what can I give to this person? Self-emptying, others-serving, other-oriented love. That is the love that God has for us, and he expressed it in Jesus, that he came into our sinful, broken world to save us, to heal us. He gave his life up for us. So when we look at Jesus and the agape love that he had, we begin to walk in those paths and to walk in the way of love. Um, okay, so... We, we learn that, to, to live in this commitment to seek the good of the other for the sake of the other. Now maybe, like, as you hear that, there's a part of you that's like, but what happens when you do that and, like, the other person doesn't get, reciprocate that? I mean, does anybody, does anybody feel that? It was like, well, if I just, like, empty myself into, like, a relationship or into a community, but, like, what if, what if it empties me? 
Like, what if I'm giving, but I'm not receiving? And, and maybe we've experienced that in the past. And there, there might be wounds and pain in that. Because that's not the way it's supposed to work. The, the picture here is like if you imagine a, a pitcher of water, and everybody has a pitcher of water, right? And, and like agape says, hey, I'm going to like pour into your pitcher. But you're also going to pour like back in. Like I'm going to give myself, I'm going to serve you, but you're going to serve me. And others are going to serve each other. And nobody's lacking anything. That's an agape community. That's how we walk in the way of love. That we're pouring ourselves out, but we don't lack anything. That's part of the new humanity. That's the vision here. So we walk in the way of love. Now, let's get to the good stuff. Paul's going to say, if you're going to walk in the way of love, there are some things to avoid. There are some ways to walk that are not agape. They are not love. They are not the path that Jesus has has laid out for us. And so he's going to talk about avoiding certain things so that we can become certain kinds of people, these people who walk in the way of agape. And he, he says, the things to avoid, verse 3, but among you there must not even be a hint. I mean, do you hear the urgency of that? Like not even a hint, not even a little bit. Of, of what? Well, of sexual immorality, of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these things are improper for God's holy people. So these things are like, opposite the way of love. These are the ways of like self-centered living. And, and he says there, there are three. The first one is sexual immorality. And, and sexual immorality in the Bible is just this like big umbrella term. Um, it's actually, next slide, um, it's, it's the word porneia. Probably sounds familiar, right? It's where we get our word pornography from. Um, sexual immorality is like this big umbrella term that catches all sexual activity outside of God's design of a covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Like, that's how the Bible talks about sexual immorality. This is what one commentator says. Sexual immorality refers to any form of illicit sexual behavior outside of what is prescribed by God in his word. This encompasses both actions of the body and the thoughts of the heart. So not just like the physical things we do, but Jesus also says lust, right, is a form of sexual immorality. Even though we don't act out on it, it like, it dwells inside of us. It takes our headspace. So sex, according to God, finds its perfect fulfillment only in the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And here's... I mean, the the reality of this is every biblical scholar agrees. I've I've not found one that that says, no, that's not what sexual immorality means. Like, every serious biblical scholar says, like, yeah, like when the New Testament says sexual immorality, that's what it's talking about. Any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, there are some liberal biblical scholars who would say it meant that, but it doesn't mean that anymore. Right? There are some who, who would say that. And I think that's like taking an authority that we don't have to change the meaning of that word. So this is, Paul says, like, just like, don't even have a hint of this. Um, so, every, um, so, okay, so sexual immorality, and then he says two other things. Impurity, the idea behind this word impurity is to take something that is good and pure and right and to make it dirty 
um, and distorted. It takes, something, it takes something good and right, and it kind of warps it and distorts it. It makes it something other than it's supposed to be. Does that make sense? So impurity. And then lastly, greed. Now you're like, why greed? And, and I think this is like greed is often listed in with like these sexual, um, sexual sins in the Bible, not as like a separate thing in like, oh, and by the way, don't be greedy. But what it refers to is this fact that like if you give in to sexual cravings and sexual appetites and desires, you will have this endless need for more. Right? You, you, you started by just clicking on this site, but it, it led you to like the next click and the next click and the next click. And it was like the things that kind of brought you that dopamine, like, you know, a week ago, they don't do that anymore. And so you're on this path that leads you to like just darker things. And if you could see that back here, you'd be like, no, 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 I never want to become that kind of person. But it's just like one, one little step, one little decision, just it's just a little thing at a time, and it, it's, there's this greed that is a part of it. I need more to fulfill me. So, sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. Um, I just want to give you an example of, in another letter in Colossians 3, these things are often linked together. Um, Paul writes to the Colossians, and he says, so put to death. He, I mean, he takes it super seriously. If this exists in you, it's like, allow the love of God to put it to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your, your sinful nature, and these things are sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So these things are often just kind of linked together. Um, now, let's talk about God's design for a little bit. Because God is the one who designed sex. Did you know this? Right? God is good, and God's design for human flourishing, um, it was his idea. And I happen to think it was a really good idea. If we were a Pentecostal church, somebody might say amen to that, right? Right? I happen to think it was, it was a really good idea. That biblically speaking, there is nothing dirty or shameful about sex. You know the, the scripture that Reuben read for us this morning in Genesis 1? Um, is, it was beautiful. God's design in the beginning, Adam and Eve, there in the garden. I'm just going to read it again. So God created humankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them. Male, female, he created them. Gender is a part of the story from page one, right? Male, female, he created them. God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and increase in number. How do you think they were supposed to do that? Right? This is the first command given in the Bible. God's like, okay, like, make more, like be fruitful and multiply. And, and so God designed us exactly the way he wanted us. It was, yeah. Okay. Greed, which is idolatry. Yeah, okay, so the question is like in, in the text here, back to Colossians, it's like put to death these things because they're idolatry. And yeah, great question. So the idea of idolatry is where you take some created thing, whether it's a person or an object, and you try to get your worth from it. You try to put it in a place that it doesn't belong. 
So we can do this with substances, we can do this with other people, we can do this with activities. Whatever it is, it's something good that's out of place. And we try to get worth and meaning and life from it. Does that make sense? So these things, like if you are trying to get like your needs met through sexual activity or um, by putting this other person in a place where like they are going to fulfill your deepest needs, it's actually a form of, of idolatry. So it's a great, a great question. Um, it's, it's putting a good thing out of place. So anyhow, so, back, so Genesis, Genesis 1, God designed sexuality. Um, God designed our bodies exactly the way he wants them, right? It's not like God was like forming human beings and then he like turned his back and the evil one snuck up and like created like, you know, sexual, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? I watch my words, organs, we'll call them organs, right? Anatomy, thank you, Nurse Carmen. It's not like, like our human anatomy was like a surprise to guys like, oh, hey, where did that come from, right? It was like his design in the beginning, and so I think this is, this is really important to understand that the opening page of the Bible is about human flourishing. It is this good, true, beautiful God who created human beings to live and to thrive in this world. And sexuality and gender, it's just a part of God's good design. The first word that the Bible says about human sexuality is it is good. It is very good. The first word he says about human bodies are they are good. They are very good. God could have created us any way he wanted to. He could have created us as like spiritual beings. He could have created us like angels. He could have done any of that, and he didn't. He created us exactly the way he wanted us. And it's good and right. And, and so we have to understand this, that all of this comes from God. He created sex. He created sexual identity. He created our bodies. And then he made it really like, it's not like a task, to procreate. When he says be fruitful and multiply, he like creates attraction between men and women. It's like his desire. He like makes it really like enjoyable to, to create new, new life. And so it's so important for the church to, to say this, that, that sexuality is not dirty, it is not crass, it is not unmentional, it's not shameful, it is a wonderful gift from God. And by the way, if this is your first time to LifeBridge, welcome. We're so, <laughs> so glad you're here. It's good. Is good? Yeah? How are we doing? <laughs> Hashtag real talk, right? Um, and and so, so I just want to be as clear about this as possible because I think there is so much freedom in this. The next slide. Like, if, if you look at the way God designed this, is like we have these concentric circles of relationships, and we all live in these to some extent, right? So there's society, there's just like, there's everybody. There's people in your neighborhood, your community. This is just people, maybe you're not in relationship with them, but you, you live in the same neighborhood. You'll go to a ball game together. And then there's community. It's like, oh, these are the people who, I, I start to know them and I'll say hi to them or I'll wave to them. Community, there's friendship. These are people I know and I journey alongside and I care about and have a relationship with. And then there's family. These are people who, whether it's a, a biological family or a forged family, um, spiritual family, right? There's like these family bonds where like we do life together, we share life together. And then there's marriage. And, and marriage is like this covenant relationship where, um, where like a man and a woman like commit themselves and bind themselves to each other in this lifelong covenant. And it is within that like central, that central relationship where God says like this is the environment, this is the container where the fullest expression 
of human intimacy where the act of sex is, is designed to belong. It is within the safety and the exclusivity that this bonding power that God creates, right, this like release of oxytocin that binds you to another human being where two flesh, two people become one flesh, that is where God designed it to be. And then he, he gives it the creative power to bring new life. That, that if, and I, and I realize, like, that's not always the story, right? That, that many of us, many people have struggled with, with infertility. And I, I just want to be sensitive to that. The Bible is, is so full of, of people. It's part of God's story. It's like people struggling, wanting to create new life, but not able to. And yet, new life is often created, right, through this act of intimacy. And it's into this stable, nurturing environment, a covenant of marriage where children are meant to be brought up. Um, where they can have the stability and nurture they need, where they can grow to know the Lord, where they can become mature and complete. So this is God's design. And yet, because it's a part of God's good design, because there's so much power in that bonding act of sexual intimacy, this is absolutely an area that the evil one wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Because that's what the evil one does. The evil one takes good gifts Something good and right and holy and pure, and he wants to distort it. He wants to cause pain, and he wants to do damage to our souls. That's what the evil one wants to do. So the evil one takes these good gifts created by God for good, for our flourishing, and then he turns them into something that will enslave us and that will cause us damage and pain, that will damage our souls and wound us on such a deep level. And our culture is so confused about sex, right? The, ever since like the, the 1960s, there was this, this movement of like sexual freedom, right? The, I wasn't around in the 1960s, even though my beard makes me look like it. Um, the, the sexual revolution, right, of the 1960s, it, it said like, you know what, like the, um, throw off all the constraints, like the idea of marriage and monogamy and exclusivity in marriage, like get rid of all of that. That's just a social construct. There's nothing more to that. Get rid of all of that and just like be free. Be free to, to do whatever you want with whomever you want. Be liberated from the traditional views of sex. Um, and this was the... Um, this is the way our, our culture has, has moved from the 1960s to today, where we're now like one of the most prominent children's education, sex education curriculums says this, defines sex this way. Okay, this is according to a well, well-known children's sex education program. It says sex is this. It is something two consenting adults do to give one another pleasure. It is woefully incomplete. Right? And that, that's what culture says. It's something two consenting adults do to give one another pleasure. And there's so much damage and pain like brought through, through this. Right? You guys remember the Me Too movement? So much damage. So much pain. Right? From, from like all of the, the sexual aggression that has been done mostly to women throughout history. That like now our culture's best answer is to say like college campuses are passing out these contracts to say like, hey, make sure both partners sign this contract before you have sex with each other so nobody gets sued so you make sure you're consenting. It's like that's our best answer. Our culture is so confused, like so confused. 
And, and, and God is completely just sort of taken out of this picture. And it has, it has like serious consequences, right? Like when we have removed, what culture tells you to do is if you go back to those concentric circles, um, culture has said, hey, take sex outside of this covenant, bond, safety, security of marriage and move it to the furthest circle out. You, you can express the most intimate act you can ever do with another person who you never met before. And we have apps to make that happen, right? It's just like, can you imagine like the, the, the pain that this causes? There's a tremendous amount of pain associated with this. Nearly half of all children who are brought into the world now are brought into the world outside of that, the bond of a covenant of marriage. And so one of the things that I, I think as confused as our culture, and, and we've all been discipled by our culture in some ways on this, right? We've all like heard these messages, and we've been formed in it. And so maybe this is brand new for you, right? Like that the way of Jesus, it's different. It's different than the culture that we, the messages that we were, we were taught. But the gospel was different in the first century too. Like as Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, the, the culture in Ephesus was, was probably even more confused than we are. Um, let me just give you a little bit about like what it was like when, when Paul, because we can look back on the early church and we can be like, oh, like they had it all put together. No, they didn't. I mean, the Greco-Roman society in the first century was, was crazy messed up when it came to sex. Here's what one commentator says. He says, well, okay, a man, like sexuality in the first century was very male dominated. Like men could basically do whatever they wanted. And so when Paul is addressing this stuff, immorality, impurity, and greed, he's addressing mostly men who had the power. So hear that, right? He's addressing men. He says this, a man might have a mistress who, he could, who could provide him also with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine. So basically he owns this slave who he can take out his sexual desires on and she had nothing. Um, he or she, um, like male slaves, were also used in this way in the first century. While casual gratification was readily available through a harlot, like part of like temple worship in pagan temples was you would go to the temple, you would worship, and you would, um, you would have sex with a temple prostitute. This was all happening in the first century in the city of Ephesus. The function then of this man's wife was to manage his household and to be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. Sex was about male power. It was about male authority. And marriage in the first century was just like a financial arrangement um, that meant to like, you know, hold the family structure together. But outside of marriage, everything was about male pleasure. So Paul writes this letter in, in the back of your Bible is there are two letters to Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And Timothy is pastoring in the city of Ephesus. Right, where Paul writes this letter, Timothy's there, he's a young guy, and he's pastoring in the city of Ephesus. And, and, and you imagine, okay, so Timothy's there, and he's like trying to form this Jesus community who walk in the way of love, and they're walking out of these, like, these ways of like sexual immorality and impurity that leads to greed and idolatry and all of that stuff, and he's trying to form this unique Jesus community out of like this culture where this stuff is normal. You imagine this, right? And so there's a, there's a guy, uh, we're call, well, let's call him Charles, right? That's a good first century name, Charles. And Charles, like, he, this is his normal life. He's just, he grew up in this culture that this is what you do. This is what men do. And then all of a sudden, he hears Timothy proclaim the good news of Jesus. And, like, the spirit, like, stirs his heart. And he's like, 
I believe that. Like, I believe Jesus died for my sins, and I believe Jesus was raised from the dead, and like, I want to, I want to make Jesus Lord in my life. And so Charles surrenders his life to Jesus. And then he and Timothy get together and they meet like next week. And Timothy's doing some like new Christian follow-up with him. He's like, hey, buddy, Charles, welcome to the family. Right? Welcome to the family. Like it's so good to have you here. We got a couple things to sort out. Hey, those pagan temples you've been visiting every couple of weeks, you can't go there anymore. Those are off limits. That's not who you are anymore, right? You can't take your body and, and join them in, with, with these prostitutes in this way. Hey, that, that mistress you've been seeing, like, she, she's gone. The church, by the way, is this new kind of community formed in the way of love. And so, by the way, those slaves that you have, they're not your slaves anymore. They're actually your brothers and sisters in Christ. They have, they have equal standing in the eyes of God. And so you need to repent for the ways that you've been treating them and turning them into property to be used for your own gratification. You, you need to repent from that and, and turn from that and give them the dignity that God created them to be. The church is a new kind of family. And by the way, the wife that you have been neglecting, you're actually called to love her sacrificially and to lay down your life for her just like Jesus laid down his life for you to save you. Welcome to the church, Charles. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine Timothy? Can you imagine how difficult it would be to bring people from a very confused culture around sexuality where there's been so much damage, so much pain, so much brokenness, and to try to form a uniquely Jesus-centered community that's a different community? Can you imagine what that might be like? Right? The, the first century is not all that different from us. And so, right, we... This is, this is our story, even though it's, it's different. We come from, around this room, we come from all different kinds of backgrounds, all different kinds of histories, all different kinds of stories. And the goal, the goal for all of us is to come out of the brokenness of the world that brings all kinds of wounds and pain and to be formed in the way of Jesus. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing here. So... Um, Let's look, at, let's look at verse 4. Yeah, we're on verse 4. We're going to 14. Um, ah, deep breath. No, we, we, won't, we won't spend that much time here. I just, yeah. Um, are, you feeling, are you feeling truth in love? I, ho I hope so. I hope this doesn't feel judgmental. Um, I, I feel a deep burden that, that like part of being a pastor, part of being called to rightly handle the word of God is to, is to be as clear as possible because clear is kind. I'm clear as kind, right? And, and I would not be kind if I jumped over this passage. And I would not be kind if I, if I just kind of like, you know, tried to, to explain in the way, in other ways, because I think the truth will set us free. It, it, it can if our hearts are open to it, and I hope our hearts are open to it. So verse 4, the Apostle Paul goes on. He's like, okay, so don't even let there be a hint of these things among you. Verse 4, nor should there be any upsetity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So he's basically saying like, like those, those like sexual innuendo jokes that you used to do in junior high that like got a laugh from people or you used to do on the, I, were, I was a construction worker for like three years. And like what I discovered is like we're all just like overgrown junior high kids. Sorry, that's maybe a, Sorry, yeah, sorry, junior high kids. Um, but you know, those like, those like, you know, like you know the jokes, right? They get the easy laugh with your buddies. It's like, hey, that's not who you are anymore. 
It doesn't fit you anymore. When he uses the word improper here, like these are improper for God's holy people, it's like they don't fit you anymore. It's like putting that sweater on that's just like four sizes too small. It doesn't fit you anymore. So, so just like learn, it's not living in the way of love. So just figure out how, how you're going to exit those conversations, how you're going to like not contribute to that kind of stuff. Um, once again, the church should be this refuge of safety, that when you walk into the church, there should be this refuge of safety from all of the distorted, confused sexual practices in the world. That's the visionary. That's the pastoral heart. It's like, man, the church is different. Like, I, I know, like, out there in the world, like, out there in the world, like, that's what happens. It's like people just make these, make these jokes, and they make jokes at other people's expense, and they, they turn a, a human being made in God's image with a soul and an eternal destiny, they turn him into an object to evaluate and to use for their own sexual gratification. That's what happens. But that doesn't happen in the church. That's the vision. Like, church is different. Church is a refuge from that. Now, I want to say this. Man, there's so much. Um, Can you imagine? Like, can you imagine church? Like, so there's, there's there's a woman who all her life has been made to feel, I am the way I look. And I am what people say about me. And I am like an object to be sort of glared at and to be evaluated and to be used for someone else's gratification. I mean, that's, that's who they feel their identity has been made to become. But when they step in the church... There should be this deep relief. It says, that's not, that's not the world I live in in here. That these people see me. Like they see me. And they care about my soul. And they look at me in the eyes. And I am treated with dignity and honor because I am made in the image of God. And I am somebody that Christ has given his life for. That's what the church is called to be. And so there is this really significant warning that Paul gives. It's like because like when the way of the world, when, when people are turned into objects to, use, to be used, and, and that happens out in the world, it's going to happen out in the world, but when it happens in the church, like, oh, there are serious consequences. When that woman steps inside the church and all of a sudden people start treating her that same way, and it's like, it's, it, I thought you guys were different. I thought like this was a refuge. I thought this was a safe place. And then they're treated in this way. This is what Paul says. For you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person, which such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God. Like if we reject the way of love and if we are, are like bringing the, the corrupt vision of, of sexuality into the church, like there's this harsh warning Um, verse 6 he says let no one deceive you with empty words because for such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient therefore don't be partners with them I mean empty words have have really significant consequences right don't don't like listen to empty words that just say hey it's what I do in my private life and it doesn't matter so like why do you care no like you belong to the community of faith you're connected and like you, you represent the people of God and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit where God's spirit dwells in you. Like this is a big deal. 
So don't like, don't just get persuaded by these empty words to say like, ah, it's no big deal. Like Paul says, like there is, God says an emphatic no to this. And that no is, is talked about as God's wrath that comes upon these things. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the word wrath. I think it's probably, it's one of the most misunderstood concepts in the Bible. Wrath, when the Bible talks about wrath, it is not a couple things. It is not God's rage. It's not fury. It's not uncontrolled anger. When we hear wrath, I, I've asked like dozens of people this. What comes to your mind? And most of the time it's this. Fury, rage, uncontrolled anger. Like God is angry at these things. That's not wrath. Like there are words like that in the Bible and this is not one of them. The word used for wrath is the word orge. O-R-G-E. And here's what it means. It is God's good and right and loving judgment on sin. God is love, right? And part of God's love is his good and right and loving judgment on human sin. Why? Because sin destroys us. It wounds us. It damages us. And it damages his, his good creation. And so God is right and good. God would not be good and loving to let sin that damages other people, that turns people into objects to be used and then thrown away. He would not be a good God if he didn't bring judgment on that. Would you agree with me? God, God is so good and so loving that his wrath is an expression of his love because sin destroys us and it destroys our relationships and it makes a painful mess of our lives and our world. And many of us bear the wounds of that. And so God brings, he brings judgment on those things and he, um, he, he wants to set us free from them. So I, I'm, I preach so long my batteries are running out up here. So I want to, let's, let's, everybody take a deep breath. Sex, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, wrath. It's a big sermon, isn't it? It's like a, thank you, Paul. Who assigned me to preach this anyhow? Right? Oh, it was me. Oh, that was, that's right. Um, so how do we heal? How do we go forward? How do we walk in the way of love? Can I tell you what doesn't work? Like, so maybe, maybe there's conviction, right? Conviction is good. Like, it is, it is a, a, God gave us a conscience, and he gave us, like, when we, hear, when we hear the truth of how God designed us, it should, if we're out of step with that, it should bring conviction. And conviction is not something to, like, turn away from. Like, when God's light shines on us, we don't step into the darkness. We don't try to move the light. We just, like, say, okay, God, like, your light's going to heal me. So I want to step into that light. And so conviction is a good thing. Condemnation is not a good thing. Condemnation says, I'm worthless, I'm broken, there's no hope for me. That's condemnation. That's the voice of the evil one. Silence the voices of condemnation. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Bring conviction. How do we heal? Well, so this is how we don't heal. Let's jump, um, let's jump down. Oh, sorry. Okay, I'll just go through it. Um, you know how we don't heal? There, there's a cycle of shame, religious shame, that says this. You know what you need to do? You need to try harder to be better. Try harder to not sin. Just like willpower, right? Change. And so you try to try harder, and then you, it works for maybe a day or a couple hours or a week or a couple of weeks, depending on like how strong your willpower is. So you try harder, but then eventually you get tired. Your willpower gives out. And then you give up. And you're like, ah, I can't be good. And so you give in. And you like in, engage in whatever kind of, you know, sort of sexual immorality um, that is your temptation. 
And then what do you feel? Like, oh, I did it again, and I feel the shame of this. And then finally, like, we, we come out of the shame, and it's like, okay, I'm going to try harder again, and then we fatigue. Do you feel the cycle of this? We just like, hmm. I mean, right? I've lived this cycle a lot of my life, and it doesn't work. Like, it does not work to heal us. And so what does work to heal us? Well, like, we need a better vision. Of, we need a vision of human flourishing. We need a vision of God's good story. We need a vision that says, like, God created human beings in this way, and I'm a part of God's story. And the Bible begins with a wedding, and the Bible ends with a wedding. Genesis 1, the, the, the like, high point of Genesis 1 is the, the coming together, the one flesh of the man and the woman. It is a beautiful thing that God loves and creates, and the Bible ends with the wedding. Revelation 21 is the wedding of the new heaven and the new earth, Jesus and his bride, the church. Like, we're going to be a part of this celebration like intimacy with God forever. That's the story you're caught up in, right? This love story of God for his people. This is your story. I'm doing three weddings in the next like six months um, or at least doing some like premarital counseling. And it's fantastic. And I love this so much. And my favorite moment is like, right, when the, when like, you get to pronounce them. Like, what an incredible honor to get to pronounce somebody, husband and wife, and, and you watch them, like, walk out of this place where they've made their vows to each other, and, and they just, like, they're different, right? And, and they get to, like, begin this new identity together, and I'm just like, that's, right? There's a picture of that unity that is the unity God wants us to have with him, that weddings are this picture of God's covenant relationship with his people. Um, <clears throat> book on sexuality called A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. And it says this, the Bible does not teach that there will be no marriage in heaven. I think there's a misspelling there. A, uh, there will be no marriage in heaven. Rather, it teaches that there will be one marriage in heaven between Christ and his bride, the church. Huh? What? Oh, the name of the book is called A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. Um, Right? Like, we are going to experience this, like, connection and intimacy with God for all of creation, for all of eternity. So we have a better vision. Like, this is the story we're a part of. And that better vision leads us to practices of love, that we learn how to walk in the way of love. And maybe it's just like we take small steps, and we need community, and we need people around us who support us. And we're going to trip and fall and get our face in the snow. And then, like, somebody's going to pick us back up. And like, no, no, follow me. Like, follow Jesus. Like, we're on this journey together. We're trying to figure it out together. And so we have these practices of love and grace and support and care. Yeah, next, next slide there. Um, these practices of love where we learn to take our urges and our cravings and we learn to let them drive us to God, like to the one who created us. We learn how to live in like non-sexual intimacy with our brothers and sisters in Christ, like where we're connected and we share life together, where we see, we see each other and we're seen, where we're loved and we get to love, where we honor the image of God in each other. Like this is what heals us and this leads to transformation. It changes us. And like our church is full of people who have been transformed, who are being transformed, who have come out of patterns of the world and who are learning to walk in the way of love. And when you, are, you see transformation happen in other people and happen in your own life, it is so powerful and people notice it in you. And it is such a beautiful story and it leads to joy. And it, like the joy, next slide, the fullness of, of God, of how he created us to be 
when we are in line with him and the truth of his word, it brings deep joy in our heart. And this is the life-giving cycle of love and grace. Vision, practices of love, transformation, and joy. I mean, do you want this? Like, man, this is, what I, this is what I want desperately. And so, so many of us, like, right, we've fallen short of, like, God's design. We just have in so many ways. I have fallen short of it. And, and we all need healing in some way or another. And so here's what I want to end with. So the worship team, you guys can come up. There's this beautiful story in Luke chapter 7. And it's a woman who she has, we don't know her backstory exactly, but we know that she has, she's become known as a woman who is like selling her body to be used as an object for men. She's, she's a prostitute. And so somehow she, she learns about Jesus, she hears Jesus, and she knows that she needs healing from like just the shame and the pain and the brokenness in her life. Jesus is having dinner with a religious leader, a Pharisee. Do you know that Jesus did that? He went anywhere that people were open to him. It didn't matter who they were. So he's having, he's having dinner with a Pharisee. And this woman walks into the Pharisee's house. Can you imagine how much courage she would have had? Like, if I need to get to Jesus, I'm going to walk into the Pharisee's house, to the one who's like, makes me like feel shame and like their whole existence is about keeping me outside and keeping me away from, from like the presence of God. And, and this woman is desperate for Jesus and she comes and she, she comes to Jesus and she falls at his feet and she begins to like wash his feet with her tears. Just like deep brokenness, deep woundedness, deep shame. She washes his feet with her tears and she begins to dry his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee looks and he's like, oh, if he was really a prophet, if he was really a man of God, do you know what he'd do? He'd like know what kind of woman this was and he would kick her out of the house. Obviously, he isn't a man of God. And so Jesus, he knows what the Pharisee's thinking and he says, let me tell you a story. There was a story of two people. One was forgiven this massive debt and the other was forgiven just a little bit. Who do you think loved more? The one who was forgiven much or the one who was forgiven little? And the Pharisee says, oh, the one who was forgiven much. And Jesus says, that's her. Like she, she has come and she's, just, she's come to me and, and I am going to heal her and I'm going to restore her. And he looks at this woman with like all of her courage and all of her brokenness, she just comes to Jesus and Jesus says, well, your sins are forgiven. Like your, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I mean, is this beautiful? This is who Jesus is. Like this is, this is how Jesus treats wounded people. This is how he treats us when we feel just so burdened with shame. He says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Whatever your past, whatever your story, whatever shame you carry, I can promise you that when you come to Jesus with a sincere heart of surrender, that he forgives you and he saves you and his peace will heal you and make you whole and holy. The only thing he requires is that we come to him. There is no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. So, Lord, we bring all of ourselves to you. Like our, our whole selves. We don't hide anything from you. Like we know our brokenness, and you know our brokenness. You know the shame we carry. 
None of it is a surprise to you. And Lord, we know you're good. We know that you are better than we ever could have imagined. We know that you are more gracious than we could ever, than we, we could ever make you out to be. So Jesus, do your work in us today. Let the truth of your word, the truth of your design for us, would it sink deeply into our hearts? Would the truth of it heal and restore? Would we have the courage to correct ourselves according to your light? If we're out of step with you, God, would you, would you just give us the courage to just bring our whole lives into alignment with you? Help us to, do, to, to be gracious and to help each other as we figure out how to walk in the way of love. Would you just like turn us into a community where Jesus, you are felt, where your presence has say-so over every area of our life. Create us into a, a refuge and a relief from all of the brokenness of the world. Do your work in us, God. God, if some of us need to need to hear today your words as we come to you, you are forgiven. Would you speak that to us? As we repent and as we come to you, speak words of forgiveness, salvation, healing, and peace. Holy Spirit, just as we sing this song, just have access to every part of our life. Do your work. We love you so much, Lord.